This episode of the Vulture TV podcast is sponsored by Colony. From Carlton Cuse, executive producer of Lost, comes USA Network's new original series, Colony, starring Josh Holloway and Sarah Wayne Callies. In an occupied Los Angeles, everyone must choose a side. Colony, a new original series, premiering Thursday, January 14th at 10, 9 central, only on USA Network. Experience the most delicious, entertaining, and bizarre parts of life in the big city with New York Magazine's collection of podcasts, available exclusively from Panoply. Tune into the Grub Street podcast for restaurant trends that'll soon be sweeping the country. Catch exclusive interviews with the stars of your favorite TV shows with the Vulture TV podcast. And check out Sex Lives for intimate discussions of sex in the real city. It's like taking a trip to New York from the comfort of your earbuds. The following podcast contains spoilers. Check the episode description to see the exact times of the segments that contain spoilers. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to the Vulture TV Podcast. I'm your host, Gazella Mami. On this week's show, we're talking about the Golden Globes, the winners, the losers, and what to make of it all. Cookies for everyone tonight. My treats. That's coming up, but first, if you have any questions for us or ideas for topics you'd like to hear, leave us a voicemail at 646-504-7673 or email us at tvquestions at vulture.com. As usual, I'm here with Vulture TV columnist Margaret Lyons and TV critic Matt Solar Seitz. Hey, Gazelle. Hi, Matt. Hi, guys. Hi. I thought we could start by talking a little bit about the Globe's history with television because as usual, a lot of people were surprised by a lot of the winners. I think the big sort of thing was like, oh, Mozart in the Jungle. And the truth is that the Golden Globes love a freshman show, and they love a show with international appeal. And I think that's very squarely mm-hmm. Mozart in the Jungle territory. So it's surprising to see a show like that beat something like Transparent or Veep. But at the same time, it's sort of like, okay, well, that's kind of the Globes' M.O. And we've seen shows, you know, like Party of Five win or... In its second season, Nip Tuck beat out The Sopranos and Deadwood. Like, there is a long history of picking offbeat, quirky, glitzy shows. They are, and that's one of the things that I really like about The Globes. And I've often defended The Globes and also on on the film side of things, the National Board of Review, and they get made fun of. And the, a lot of the questions are the same. Who are these people anyway is what it comes mm-hmm. down to. You know, who does anybody even know who's in it? What are their qualifications? As if you had to go to frickin' Harvard to be a member of some of these <laughs> other groups. And I just really love how consistently The Globes thinks a little bit outside of the box. I mean, not always. There are cases in which they do give it to people that you expect them to give it to in shows and films and so forth. But... You do get something like Mozart in the Jungle, and that's great. And Rachel Bloom for Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, which is fantastic. And everybody in the room seems surprised by that. But it was a very Golden Globes thing to do, and she totally deserved it. She totally did. Yeah, I mean, I think one thing the Globes is able to do that, I don't know, more rigid shows like the Emmys don't, is really put a spotlight on shows that don't get any attention otherwise, you know? And I think last year when we saw Gina Rodriguez win for Jane the Virgin, that was really gratifying, I think, for fans of the show who felt like, will anyone ever notice how good this is? And and feeling like, okay, well, I'll take it, you know? Like, a Golden Globe, that's not nothing. And I think for a show like Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, this is the first time a lot of people had 
heard of that show. And I think like a little moment like that goes a very long way to to bringing attention to little scene or under-recognized right. shows. And same with Mozart in the Jungle, where sure. you may not think it necessarily deserved to beat other shows in the category, like Transparent, say. But Mozart in the Jungle, I've just been watching the second season, and it's a fun show. And it's nice that now people may start watching it. And... It's nice to not take these things as seriously and just be like, hey, this show that these people are working really hard on is maybe going to get a little more love than it did. And I, and I would say, I would add to that, that Mozart in the Jungle, well, it's not not a deep show, a sort of stereotypically deep show in the way that we usually think of that kind of a show. It's a good show, and there's a lot going on in that show, and it's, it has a light touch, but it's mm-hmm. pretty sophisticated in the way that it examines the backstage kind of... I guess you would say soap opera of the lives of these musicians and the administrators and also the practical details of how do you keep an orchestra going? Right. How do you decide who is in what chair? How do you de- how do you how do you keep the thing funded? What sorts of compromises do you have to make? And it's a kind of show that doesn't get talked about. Yeah. It does just doesn't get talked about and and the talking about it is a thing that I think is important because I have a theory about one of the reasons why the Golden Globes is perhaps slightly more likely to nominate a show or or an individual that is surprising than maybe other groups is because if you look at a group like the Emmys or the Motion Picture Association of America, the members are all of the same industry. They're all sort of part of the same ecosystem, but they don't necessarily all talk to each other. They don't hang out together. They don't. They aren't like constantly trading emails saying, "Oh my God, have you seen this? If not, you should check it out." And the members of the Hollywood Foreign Press, like whatever you may say about their journalistic credentials, and I've met, and you know, some of them are just entertainment reporters, but others are really smart people. I mean, I've met some of them on press tour. They talk to each other. They talk to each other, and it's much more likely that there's going to be this sort of cult groundswell of support for something. Mm-hmm. And a lot of more things that we might think of as discoveries, at least in contrast to something like the Emmys, where you'll get the same show winning year after year after year. And you get the suspicion sometimes, and you're not always wrong, that these shows maybe aren't even really being watched. Like, it's a case of, oh, yeah, I know who that is, and you check the box. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think the Emmys has a very bad case of being inert. Something like Modern Family winning year after year after year it becomes like a real head-scratcher. And I actually, I like Mozart in the Jungle a lot less than you guys. I just, uh, <laughs> it just does not work for me at all. But I'd rather roll the dice and get, like, these sort of weirdo picks and have a little bit of fun and be like, this old thing again? Like, it's a worthy trade-off to me. Yeah, and they also, uh, the, the Globes have had a pretty good track record of honoring people who are not really honored as often by the other major awards-giving bodies. Like, you know, the example that always springs to mind is Sarah Michelle Gellar, who got nominated as Best Actress on a Drama for Buffy the Vampire Slayer, which is something that the Emmys never got around to doing, I don't I don't think. Ian McShane won a Golden Globe for Deadwood, but he never won an Emmy for Deadwood. Right. And did Carrie Russell... Carrie Russell won an Emmy... Uh, won a Golden, Golden Globe. Globe. She never Felicity. won an Emmy, right? I don't even think she was nominated yeah, for an no. Emmy. Shows like the X-Files, which are not really Emmy darlings otherwise. Yeah, and a lot of times you see this phenomenon where the Golden Globes honor a show or an individual, and then the very next Emmys or the Oscars, it, it does seem to give people a, a push. I mean, mm-hmm. that's changed a little bit now. Like, the, the you know, the window has closed a bit so that now I believe the uh, voting for the Oscars concluded on Friday, which is prior to the Globes, so there's no chance of influence there. But it definitely plants a seed in people's minds. And maybe if you don't see the effect of it immediately, like in the next award cycle, you might the year after that. Let's talk a little bit about the show itself. What did you two think of Ricky Gervais as, as our host? 
I don't like him generally. And in <laughs> fact, I've been as brutal to him in some of my writing in the past as he has been to the people that he's introducing on award shows. <laughs> but I thought he was very good here. I felt like he hit a happy medium between doing what we expect Ricky Gervais to do. But not being gratuitously mean, sort of nihilistically mean, like he's just, you know, he's peeing in the pool, basically. Like, I didn't get that vibe. I felt like he stayed on the right side of nastiness. And the cases where he kind of dug the knife in a little deeper than with everybody else, it was in cases where you kind of, you expect it, like Mel Gibson. Right. You know, like, what are you going to do? Like, are people going to complain that he was too nice to Mel Gibson? <laughs> and Mel Gibson was right there, and he's he's a big boy. He can take it, apparently. And it was a nice surprise when it did happen, because <laughs> it was expected, as you said, but also, since he wasn't doing it constantly, kind of took you a little more off guard. Yeah. I think opening the show with, like, unnecessary transphobic jokes is a real misstep. And I thought that was, like, a bizarre choice. Look, if you're going to hire Ricky Gervais to host your event, you have to think that he's going to sort of, like, Take everybody down a peg. And that's fine when the person being taken down a peg is Matt Damon or whatever, somebody who has a lot of pegs to give. But I think making fun of trans women, it's like, oh, cool. What a ripe opportunity. Like, let's take them down a peg. It's like, what the fuck are you thinking? Are you, thinking, like, are you talking about Caitlyn Jenner? I think the Caitlyn Jenner stuff, I think the whole yeah. saga of, like, what does Jeffrey Tambor do with his testicles during filming Transparent? Oh, yeah, that was, that, was, like, was what, that was not necessary. Like, who are we yeah. making a target of with this? That doesn't strike me as, like, oh, what a worthy area for us to ridicule. The whole point of, like, Ricky Gervais is that he's going to say the things to celebrities that other people won't say. It's like, okay, if that's what you're in the market for, like, he certainly does it well. But you have to be a little bit more precise than that. Like, it struck me as super unfunny, really unkind, totally unnecessary. Ultimately, the bigger crime is that it was just super not funny to me at all. I also thought a lot of his shit was just dated. It's like, oh, cool, a Charlie Sheen joke. What, what was what? the Charlie Sheen joke? It was about, joke? like, Joy and, and Trainwreck being the name of Charlie Sheen's two favorite sex workers. And it was like, okay. Well, I'm not going to defend I the guys as, as the pinnacle of comedy stylings, but <laughs> it's not like Charlie Sheen hasn't also been in the news this year. Yeah, I know. But I don't know that that's a timely reference. Like, I think the more timely issue of, like, and Charlie Sheen is HIV positive. It's like, well, that's not super ripe for humor. It's that's like, true. Yeah, it's, it's not. not. <laughs> like, yeah. feel free to, like, cast yeah. your gaze elsewhere. I don't know. I guess I just found it so exhausting and it's, like, so unnecessarily mean-spirited. You know, I thought some of the stuff about, like, The Martian not being a comedy, like, that's funny, right? And I think that's sort of victimless crime, right? Like, yeah. when Andy Samberg came up and did his little bit, it was like, you know, you don't have to be, like, kissing ass and, and saying everything's amazing for this still to have an air of decency about it. That's true. How about Jim Carrey? You know, I've seen extremely mixed reactions to his bit, but I really, really, really liked it. I love I, that. I thought it was I great. I thought that was the best. The amount of control, tonal control that he has when he's when he's in that zone where he's sort of facetious and yet weirdly intensely serious, that's mm -hmm. kind of the Jim Carrey vibe. Thank you. I am two-time Golden Globe winner, Jim Carrey. You know, when I go to sleep at night, I'm not just a guy going to sleep. I'm two-time Golden Globe winner, Jim Carrey, going to get some well-needed shut-eye. And when I dream, I don't just dream any old dream. No, sir. I dream about being three-time Golden Globe winning actor Jim Carrey. Because then I would be enough. 
Nobody does it better than him. I thought it was great. He was kind of on fire. Like, sometimes he misses the mark a little bit, but this was, like, him just completely, like, reminding me of the Jim Carrey that I love so much. I would say, going back to uh, Ricky Gervais for a second, he was mild compared to the way he's been on the Golden Globes in the past. You know, like yeah, he didn't, he, he was. wasn't, he wasn't pissing people off to the point where they were coming up and, and shooting back at him like Robert Downey Jr. did in one of those telecasts. I can't remember which one. But that said, I have always found it a little bit strange that they would pick somebody like that to host an award ceremony because the award ceremonies are about giving people prizes for stuff they've done that's presumably good. And it's okay to poke a little fun, but I, I much prefer the kind of sensibility that you get on the Oscars with some of the better hosts like, when he's not too shticky, Billy Crystal, or um, back in the day, Johnny Carson, who I think was the master of it. Carson particularly had this ability to, even though he was a consummate Hollywood insider, to stand outside and throw little darts at people, but somehow they didn't draw blood, you know? And that's very, very tricky to do. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about some of the other winners last night. We saw Lady Gaga take home a Golden Globe. What do you think about that? That's an award. That's a thank you for being Lady Gaga award. That's what it is. Yeah, that's definitely a most famous award, right? Yeah, I mean, everybody, including her, seems surprised by that. I feel like uh, Cher in that John Patrick Shanley film Moonstruck right now. It's like one of the greatest moments of my life. She's not very good on the show. Yeah, she's, she's not, not good on that show. And this was not a good season of that show. And I found her speech to be, I don't know, disingenuous. And she's like, I guess you let me shine. It was like, give me a fucking break. <laughs> like, I, I thought she seemed really actually very moved by it. Like, maybe it felt disingenuous, but... It, it was extremely like, strange. It was strange, but it felt like she really meant it to me. I guess. I think was, she did really mean it, but I think she's, you know, she is the type of performer and also is in the type of niche where it's kind of hard to tell um, right. how much of it is sincere and how much of it is a performance. And maybe you kind of can't even tell yeah. anymore. But there were several points where she reminded me of Norma Desmond. Like <laughs> something about her intonation was was just kind of unnerving. I just found it to be so contrived. And I'm sure she was surprised. I mean, we're all a little surprised, right? Like, but at the same time, it's like, okay, well, you're not some random lady plucked from obscurity. You've spent <laughs> the last at least 15, maybe longer years in a very deliberate quest for fame. And that's what you have strived for and worked for and sacrificed many areas of your life for. That's fine. Like, you have achieved it, but you don't get to be all shucks about that. And that's... <laughs> Little old me. Like, yeah. this old thing? And it's just like, what? You know? <laughs> I guess the one thing I kind of agreed with Ricky Gervais about was, like, can everyone be a little bit more sensible about what is occurring in this room rather than these these sort of like gasping like thank you for honoring my art and like all the just like Kate maybe. Winslet was it was a little surprising to see her act that way as well I, th- I, I, thought, I detected a note of sheepishness in her acceptance yeah I also thought that was tough because it was not clear that the bit had ended and I think she was caught off guard by like are we done with that set of jokes is this part of the jokes because the transition from Channing Tatum and Jonah Hill's bear segment to giving that award was very abrupt and I thought her surprise was not I can't mm. believe I won but much more like is this now now is now okay like that to me seemed what was jarring because mm. I thought the order of the awards was very 
unpredictable last night. It always, oh, yeah. seems, it always seems place. that way. It always seems that way to me. I'm always a little surprised by what they give out and when. And I must confess, I, I made a terrible, terrible misjudgment last night, which is I was watching the awards with my two kids, and uh, we realized that we were out of cookies, which are a necessity for watching the Golden <laughs> yeah. Globes. And I, I sent my teenage daughter out to get cookies from the corner store, and she missed uh, Oscar Isaac's acceptance speech. Oh, oh, man. And all I can say is that I'm lucky to be alive. I'm lucky <laughs> to be alive. I really did. It took me a while to figure out she wasn't kidding. She really was pissed off that she missed Oscar Isaac. <laughs> I thought that was a really good acceptance speech, right? It was. So it was like, wow, thank you so much. This is very nice. This is about a true person. So thank you to his wife. I forgot her first name. Uh, Nay, right? Um, yeah. And he like thanked her and he thanked like HBO and David Simon and thanked the person who he was portraying, who was deceased. And, you know, it was like concise, thoughtful. Just another like, reason to love him. Prepared. Engli- that was- it was English. It was an English <laughs> acceptance speech. I don't know. I w- Those English actors always get better acceptance speeches than the Americans. They don't, they don't have that mumbling authenticity thing, you know? I was a little frustrated by Denzel Washington's speech, too, because you know, it was a Lifetime Achievement Award. He had ample time to prepare his remarks. <laughs> he yeah. didn't seem um, to take it as seriously. So, like, on the red carpet, he was. they were like, oh, do you have a speech ready? And he said, oh, you know, I have bullet points, and he showed his index card or whatever. But then he lost it, but right? Well, he, he couldn't had find it. it. He couldn't find it. Then he found it. Then he either didn't use it or couldn't He didn't read have his glasses. Or... He couldn't read it. Jamie Foxx offered him glasses. <laughs> yeah, I just, I don't know. Yeah. It's funny. My son said, like, so did he not know he was going to win this? I'm like, no. It's Lifetime Achievement Award. <laughs> I think they tell you. And, you know, it's not that hard in Hollywood to find someone who will write you a speech. Like, if you feel either unwilling, unable, or not interested in writing your own acceptance speech, you can hire someone to do that for you. Certainly Denzel Washington could. Right. I appreciated Taraji actually just when she won. Tragedy P. Henson. So many people are like, please rap. Wait a minute. I've waited 20 years for this. You're going to wait. Um, yeah, you're going to give me a little more time. I think, yeah, my fans, they've been praying for this. They're all on Twitter, like, yeah, yeah, hope you get it. You got to give me time. Like, shouting out to her fans and being like, I'm going to give this speech for them because, like, you're waiting to hear this person give a speech. You want to hear a good speech. Otherwise, why are we sitting here watching this? The kind of waiting for that. The <laughs> handing out cookies was great. I yeah. like to imagine, like, so how did she transport the cookies? Were they wrapped in a they little, little napkin? Now, you know, did, did, did she, did someone <laughs> give them to her at the award ceremony? What was the cookie transportation <laughs> right. scenario? It was great. And I love her saying, get off my train. Yeah. It was just great. She's great. I, I, I kind of want her to host next year, actually. Oh, that would be amazing. I thought that speech was fun. You know, it wasn't overly a few, right? It was like, okay, you're excited and you, you should be proud of the work you've done and that's fun and you're also like having a good time up there and yeah. you're clearly, you have some stuff prepared because it was the same, the sort of intro to her speech was the same that she had said on the red carpet. It's like, okay, you obviously like thought through what you might say. I don't think there's any shame in being composed when right. you get up there or having an idea of what you want to say. Obviously, it's always fun to see somebody really like overcome. I thought the Rachel Bloom thing was like very charming, but especially for something like a Lifetime Achievement Award, you know, you're allowed you're allowed to practice that one. And this is like my, <laughs> I get, I have this beef on like every award show. But it's like, practice it once. Like, didn't you have to take speech in eighth grade where everyone had to like give a two minute spiel on something? Like, write it down on an X card, stand in front of your dad and say it five times so you get the giggles out. And like, <laughs> oh, you're also an actor. It. Like, so you do, like, do that kind of thing Surely you could time. prepare. Like, add, oh, it makes you crazy. Were there any people or shows you were sad to not see recognized? I, for one, was hoping Kirsten Dunst would take home. I was too. I was a little surprised by the uh, shutout or near shutout of Fargo, right? Yeah, I think shutout. Shutout. Total shutout. I guess, did it win? 
last year. It won Best Miniseries last year. Best Miniseries, that's right. So, yeah, it seems like maybe the Globes also tries to spread the love a little when it comes, like, from year to year even. Yeah, and I also think Wolf Hall is a very, very worthy, you know, there's no shame in losing a Wolf Hall. I thought Wolf Hall was fantastic. I thought Mark Rylance deserved to win more recognition than he did. I just think he's he was fantastic on that show. So I was very happy to see that take a limited series win, even over Fargo, which is excellent, but will have other opportunities versus Wolf Hall, which is a one and done. I was very happy to see the recognition for Mr. Robot. Oh, yeah. That oh, was that was a cool. charmer. That yeah, was that cool. was really cool. It's funny Christian, Christian Slater, Slater. Like, I was going to say, Christian Slater is totally the type of person that they would give a Golden Globe to. <laughs> yeah. You know, not... it's like it's like combination of 80s nostalgia and he's actually good here, <laughs> yeah. you know? <laughs> yeah, I'm not the biggest fan of him on Mr. Robot. I would tend to say I'm not either, except that he's kind of perfect for yeah. that part. It's maybe more the part than it is him. I don't think it's yeah. the... I think his performance is really solid on that show. I just think Mr. Robot is a good but not great show. And there are some sort of, like, instances of, of weakness and the sort of holding it all together. And I really... I adore Mr. Robot. I love watching it, and I think it's trying much, much harder than most of its competitors, right? So yeah. these are, like, complaints that are not invalidating the, the sort of process of the show. But I think, especially with Christian Slater's character, we have these kind of like hiccups or you're just like oh yeah that's not the best part of this show or or you sort of find yourself like painted into a corner narratively and you're like oh i don't like this part so i think like it's not a matter of oh his performance doesn't right. hold my attention it certainly does i think the performance is great i just think every once in a while you can sometimes see right. all the wheels turning within mr robot and that's when you kind of Lucy it's a little hard to divorce the two when you're watching, too, the actor from the character. And that's why he's good at it, because he's... Yeah, yeah, he's, yeah he is. I appreciate that um, the Golden Globes does collectively seem to be looking for things that are a little outside of the usual, for the most part. As bizarre as it was for me to see The Revenant get best drama which is not something I expected. I was also a little bit excited that it wasn't um, Spotlight or Mad Max Fury Road, both of which are excellent, but which are what people probably expected Mm -hmm. to get those awards, I think. I can't speak to the movie categories. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Because I don't care at all. (laughs) Well, then. I actually don't. Fair enough. I can only care about so many things. My heart is full. (laughs) What else did we not talk about? John Hamm. John Hamm won Best Actor. Yeah, I was very sad that this is the last time we're going to see him win for that role. So until he won the Emmy most recently, the only other award he'd won was a Golden Globe, the year of the writer's strike, when they just read a list of people who won. So it was sort of funny to be able to like bookend his role with this. I thought that Chumbawamba joke did not land. I thought it um, <laughs> it was weird. I mean, I think the vibe of the whole night was a lot of jokes that are on paper perfectly fine and and you can imagine like if you tried them out in another room them working really really well but seeing sort of joke after joke just not land even from you know amy schumer who is a stand-up who knows how to like get the attention of the room and and sort of make everyone get on board with the energy that she's crafting and i think as a stand-up she's extremely effective as that watching her lose part of the room you're just like wow what is going on in there like there was it was just like a weird vibe or something so i feel like a lot of award shows the presenter bits are the worst they always are are. (laughs) especially although once in a while you get something that is kind of awesome in its horribleness like mm-hmm. uh, Gerard Butler and Helen Mirren together. Like, that, to me, that just, I just saw that and I went, so Gerard Butler just flat out can't act. 
apparently. <laughs> like, not even when he's reading, you know, award show yeah. stuff. And Helen Mirren, I don't know if it's maybe that's just her natural vibe, but she seemed to be giving him side eye the whole time. And, and her tone became quite withering near the end. And I enjoyed that. I enjoyed that greatly. I would prefer never to have to hate watch one of those segments, though. Like, I think it's possible for them to be good. Well, the America Ferrera. Yeah. The Eva Longoria one. Like, that was quick. It had a point of view. And they, like, that little, the two really quick little lines at the end where she was charming. That was yeah. just, like, really, really strong comic timing. And I thought that was a better sort of promo for Superstore and telenovela than all of the ads <laughs> yes. combined. You were like, oh, these are funny people. They're funny. They're being funny. That's, I'd watch them be funny. It's like, in these shows? You're like, maybe not. <laughs> uh, but, like, I feel like there are often very funny segments for those presenter bits. Right. It's possible. (laughs) It is absolutely possible. And then to watch so many fall flat, it's like Mark Wahlberg and Will Ferrell. I was not... Like, there were moments of that that I was like, this is fun. And then it was like, how long is this going for? And and what is the joke here? And, oh, I really don't have, I hope I don't have to watch him chew gum. <laughs> I don't know. I just found the whole ceremony to be really half-baked. Well, the whole, it always is in a way. I mean, there's this strange schism between the fact that the Golden Globes have become increasingly important in the awards season and the fact that they do often honor things that uh, should be honored and often things that uh, you don't expect to be honored that should be honored. And also, at the same time, the fact that there's something kind of weirdly casual and almost amateurish about them. You know, <laughs> right. like, like that's just telecast itself where like half the people seem like they've had a few too many drinks. But also just the organization itself, like they've sort of internalized this um, ridicule that a lot of people subject them to, and it's built right into the the copy that, that, that presenters read on the award ceremonies. And you even had like Denzel Washington while he's giving his, getting his Lifetime Achievement Award talking about the first time he recognized the importance of the Golden Globes, and, and it was all about basically a photo opportunity. It's like, come here, meet these people, shake their hands, and get a picture taken with them, and you might win an award. And then he did. <laughs> and and so at its base, there always is going to be an element of reporters contriving to give out awards so that they can have their picture taken with the people they've given awards to. But then again, that's true of a lot of groups, a lot of uh, critics groups that are more um, respectable than the Golden Globes or like to think they are. I think we could definitely overhaul red carpet stuff. I really do think it's getting worse. Um, <laughs> as somebody yeah. who's had to live tweet or blog every red carpet awards like pre-show a couple times a year every year for the last 10 years uh they're getting worse for sure and it's like just call billy eichner and like say (laughs) like please try to keep it pg and go nuts you know like there's so little of interest happening in those moments and certainly if you're interested in fashion i think many of us are i would much rather hear from stylists and fashion expert, right? Like, we don't need actors or actresses or directors or whatever to be like, this is who made my dress. It's like, okay, we'll talk to somebody who who was involved in <laughs> the search for that dress and, and what, you know, what the criteria are. And, and like, that kind of, like, if that's what you're interested in, ask an expert. And, and if you want just to have, like, chit-chat with Will Smith, like, have Billy Eichner or... You know, Jimmy Fallon or whatever, like, and take these much more fun, much more creative, much less stodgy people and and do it up a little. Because watching Matt Lauer and Savannah Guth, that was like, <laughs> usually I think of America's Test Kitchen as like my favorite wasp divorce. It's just like, uh, <laughs> there's just like this like simmering contempt among all the people on America's <laughs> Test Kitchen. It's like they always just like just got divorced. But they have to like keep doing the show. Uh, <laughs> 
And then watching the two of them last night, he was like, I have another red carpet tip. And she's like, we love them. And he was like, ooh, this is ice cold. Like, it's just like <laughs> so, so cold. It's just like, ooh, you guys all work together a lot. Like, <laughs> oh, I guess once you get back to the trailer, it's just like total silence. I don't know. I just thought it was like boring and contrived and unfun. And it was like, we can do this better. We know, we, there's plenty of people who are pretty good at talking live on television. I don't understand how this became what red carpet shows are like. Maybe they can combine the red carpet and the award ceremony itself and add some kind of obstacle course element, <laughs> maybe. You know, there's like rappelling and, you know, some pits they have to jump over. And... Beer pong. Yes. <laughs> a bear. Not? They could have had a bear this year. They could have had, They could have brought in a bear. A they could have bear. done a tie-in, yeah. No one thanked the bear, despite my hashtag efforts. <laughs> No thanking the bear and no thanking the mop from uh, Jennifer Lawrence. These injustices must be remedied. (laughs) We're going to take a listener question, but first, a message from our sponsors. This episode of the Vulture TV podcast is sponsored by Colony. From Carlton Cuse, executive producer of Lost, comes USA Network's new original series, Colony, starring Josh Holloway of Lost and Sarah Wayne Callies of The Walking Dead. Imagine an occupied world where everyone must choose a side. If your city was no longer your own... Who would you trust with your life? Where would you run? And what would you risk to save the ones you love? Colony, a new original series premiering Thursday, January 14th at 10, 9 central, only on USA Network. So we have a question from one of our listeners. Hi, my name is Steve Schaefer, and my question is, what is the difference in current terms in between a drama and a soap opera on television? And have you ever been fooled into thinking you're watching one form of television when you're actually watching the other? My classic example is Desperate Housewives. When I thought I was watching a drama, the narration and the mystery for the first season fooled me. And it turns out I was watching the soapiest of soap operas. Did the show change? <laughs> or was it that way the whole time? And But currently I'm in those dilemmas with how to get away with murder and a show I have to admit that I kind of hate watch, Quantico. Thank you. So so what do you guys think? Is this a problem? Well, what did you think Desperate Housewives was, Steve? I mean, I well, thought that was a pretty clear soap from the get-go. I would say the first season of Desperate Housewives seemed a bit more of a suburban satire, maybe. But I, I kind of take issue with this whole idea of a soap opera being a pejorative term. And it kind of started out as a pejorative term, but for me, anything that's described as a soap opera is basically a melodrama. It's it's something that's a little more a little more intuitive, a little more emotional, a little a little less concerned with making things plausible. Like they're not so concerned with could this happen in life. But even that doesn't really apply. When you look at a lot of things that are thought of as great TV dramas, they they have strong elements of melodrama or soap opera to them. And the conclusion that I've eventually come to is that a soap opera is, is a drama that you don't like. If you don't like it, it's a soap opera. And if you like it, it's a drama. And I don't think it's a, a coincidence that melodramas have traditionally been a format that more women have been comfortable watching than men. Because men have this, like, stick-up-the-ass macho thing where they don't like excessive displays of emotion unless a football team loses or dad <laughs> dies. Like, that's pretty much it. Or right. maybe your buddy dies in war. That's that's about the, that's about where it's acceptable for men to display emotion in these sort of dramatic contexts. So that's changing a little bit, but it's shocking how slowly it's been changing. 
that's why the soap operas that used to air during the daytime, they were aimed mainly at housewives who were stuck at home while their husbands were at work. And so those were melodramas. They were more open-ended in their storytelling, which is not in and of itself a bad thing. And soap opera was always this pejorative. And when you said something was a soap opera, you were saying it's for girls. That's that's really what it comes down to. It's like that's something a housewife would watch. That's, you know, my story. I got to go home and watch my stories. And the funny thing is, a lot of the dramas that we recognize as being groundbreaking or at least interesting are essentially melodramas. Like they may have some realistic trappings here and there, but when it gets down to it, the question of is this marriage going to work out? Are they going to get a divorce? Who's sleeping with who? Is that person going to get the promotion? This is all stuff of soap operas. And a lot of the shows that are almost never described as soap operas by guys, like something like The Sopranos or The Shield or Sons of Anarchy, those are totally soap operas. I mean, Sons of Anarchy, to me, is the real... Uh... When you describe that show as a soap opera, the person's reaction to that will tell you a lot about how that person thinks about television. Yeah. Because Sons of Anarchy is absolutely a soap opera, and that has nothing to do with whether or not it's good, right? right. So it's like, oh, the holding of someone's body as you scream no, and like, like a murder happening in a kitchen, and like all of this stuff. It's like this is quintessential soap opera stuff, and yeah. it's also the bread and butter of Sons of Anarchy, the sense of revenge, the. Family loyalty above all, these really, like, tribal conflicts. Like, this is absolutely how soap operas operate. And Sons of Anarchy is a good example of a soap opera. One thing I think is important if you want to maintain a stronger categorization between the two is to think about how sort of sandbox, open wide, a soap opera tends to be versus maybe a more mainline drama, which probably hangs more closely on one or a few characters. So something like... Mad Men, which has certainly soap opera elements. We have somebody leading a secret life. We have people dying. We have extreme scenarios. We have high levels of emotion, secret pregnancies, secret marriages. You know, there's a lot of like that kind of soapy stuff, yeah. but it is very much not an open world and very much is Don's world, right? Versus a soap opera, which say like Melrose Place, which was much more obviously a soap opera where any one person could come or go and that show could still maintain its Melrose-ness. And like there's going to be some arguments there. People be like, well, not without Amanda. It's like, well, it was a pretty good soap before Amanda. There's plenty of good soapy lines that don't involve Amanda. I wouldn't call Heather Locklear the star of Melrose Place the way we would call John Hamm the star of Mad Men. So I think one way to like maintain these distinctions is to think about how open the world is. So I think something like Quantico, which is more comfortably a melodrama, is probably not quite a soap opera because we really do need Alex as our anchor. And I think right. everyone around Alex could come or go the same way on Scandal. Olivia is our anchor and everyone around her could come or go and has, you know, there are people like no one's safe really except Olivia on Scandal. And it, it's certainly soapy, but I think in the traditional idea of a soap opera, we have a much more open world than, than in a traditional idea of a drama. Yeah, that's that's a good point. How would you classify House of Cards? Absolutely um, a melodrama. Absolutely a melodrama. Yeah. Uh, I think probably closer to a pure drama because I don't think that's a show we can imagine without Frank Underwood. Even I could imagine it without Robin Wright. I just can't imagine that show existing without Kevin Spacey. If they kill Frank Underwood on that show, it's very hard to imagine Right. more House of Cards. It's certainly soapy. I mean, it's as soapy as it gets. He's a murderer. We have a lot of uh, shenaniganery. We have a lot of... <laughs> shenaniganery. <laughs> right, like there's, a there's... new word has been coined, people. Right, and we have, you know, like, anytime someone's a secret murderer, that's going to increase our likelihood <laughs> of, like, could this be considered a soap? It's like, I don't know how many secret murderers are there. And on that show, it's like, oh, a bunch. It's like, okay, then yeah, you're probably a soap. To the second part of Steve's question, have you ever watched a show 
and seen it get progressively more soapy or realized that the show was not as purely a drama as you thought it was when you started. Yes. Yeah. One of the big ones for me was probably Game of Thrones, which I feel is absolutely a soap. And again, like to Matt's point, like soap is not a soap is often used as a pejorative, but I think for our purposes, we would like to reclaim that. I and, totally would. And so when we're calling something a soap opera, we're not poo-pooing it. I happen not to love Game of Thrones, but that's not because it is or is not a soap opera. I think Game of Thrones is a really clear example of open world. Anyone could become the most important character. People who you thought might be the most important character vanish from the series or are killed off or simply don't appear for a very long time and the show continues without them, um, however much you might miss, you know, your Ned Starks or whatever. Like, there's no argument mm-hmm. that the show required him for forever. So did the show change for you after they killed off Ned Stark? I think it probably was that my understanding of what the show was going to be about developed and I thought there was going to be a much clearer linear story for the show and it just that is not a very linear show we're not moving in one direction on that show we're moving outward in circles right like we're seeing all of our characters go sometimes literally away and and get farther from each other and there's not a series of causes and effects that is obvious many of them never meet over the course of the series and the things that are put in motion by their behavior only indirectly affect other people through lengthy and sometimes contrived avenues So it's not that the show itself changed so much as what I thought the show was, which was going to be much more of like your sort of swords and and wizards uh, heavy fantasy drama. I just misunderstood what the the series was going to be like and and seeing how much it it sort of spread wide rather than forward was like, oh, okay, this is not a hero's quest epic. This is this is a soap opera. And it's funny because the first time I started watching Game of Thrones, the thing it reminded me of more than anything else was The Godfather. It was like The Godfather with swords and dragons and magic and, and, you know, just the way that they dealt with all that court intrigue and the way the show was lit and, you know, and all of that, like those kind of Rembrandt interiors uh, was very much like what you'd see in the continuing adventures of the Corleone family. Um, and, and yeah, I mean, really, and the Godfather movies are very, very close to being melodramas. And it's only that tone, that like menacing, controlled uh, tone that prevents them from being immediately designated as melodramas. Like they are as much of a melodrama as, as uh Anything that would have a much higher percentage of women in the cast. And, and you know, I wish that I had still this anthology. I loaned it to a friend who didn't give it back. Otherwise, I would have brought it here today. But it was a book of readings about TV, and there was a whole long thing about the soap opera and the development of the soap opera and the gendering of that term. And one of the observations it made was that the storytelling in stories that tend to appeal to heterosexual men, the stories tend to be goal-directed with a beginning, a middle, and an end, and it's about achieving a thing. And once you have achieved the thing, the story is over. Whereas with the soap opera, it's more about these open-ended stories and people, they not only change their circumstances, you know, they're married, they're divorced, now they have a kid, the kid dies, whatever happens... But also just their identity is constantly in flux, you know, like how they designate themselves, where they live, how they define themselves, and their friends change. They have one group of friends in season one, and by season four, they have an entirely different group of friends because the allegiances have shifted. And these are all very much characteristics of the soap opera or the melodrama. And it's funny to me how much of the quality television that appeals to both men and women has absorbed values of the soap opera. Mm. You know, a lot of them, a lot of the shows that, that we talk about on this podcast all the time are sort of walking that line like it's hard sometimes hard to tell from week to week what label you would hang on it like a show like er like er is er a soap opera i totally think it's a soap opera i think er got increasingly 
soapy. I think one of the other markers, and this is, again, permeable as all the other definitions we're talking about, but I think a quest for realism tends to pull against a definition of soap opera. And the more realistic something is and grounded in like actual, I don't mean emotional realism, I mean like literal, this is very much a representation of how the actual world actually operates. I think that often is in opposition to something being very soapy. Not that we can't all have sort of extreme moments of our lives where you're like, this is like a soap opera in here. Uh, So I think ER, certainly for its first, say, like seven seasons, tried very hard to maintain a sense of realism. And I think once things became more bizarre and extraordinary, once we have, you know, how many times can we have a helicopter crash before you're like, this is pretty (laughs) soapy. Clooney and the storm drain, I think, is when things started to turn. Yeah, I think that that was a moment where you're like, oh, how far are we going with this? That was that to me, though, it still felt like that was we let the kite out too far and we're still going to rein it back in. Um, and the right. show continued in its like sort of path of realism until it, it felt like, I guess, it ran out of real stories to tell. Do you think that TV shows end up becoming soapier because in the quest to get more viewers, they're looking to provide these crazy plot twists that will keep you coming back? I think that absolutely happens. And, and I don't know, you know, I, I guess why it happens depends on what kind of show it is and who's writing it. But I often get the sense, just as an observer of these shows, that sometimes they do tend to push a little more in the direction of the soapy when the concept of the show or the themes of the show have proved to be perhaps not as fertile as they thought when they started out. And it's like, okay, we've got, you know, we've said most of what we probably could say on this subject in two or three or four seasons, but for a variety of reasons, we're going to keep it going for six, seven or eight. What the hell are we going to do? And I think that's when the more extreme things start Mm -hmm. to come in. Yeah. I think the longer a show goes, the soapier it's likely to get for a couple of reasons. One, it's hard to keep raising stakes, Right. So at a certain point, it's like, but will he ever love me? That's like, ooh, that's a really good like that can carry us for a while. But we're going to run out of story on that. And either they'll get together or they won't. And then the more we have them break up and get together, we're going to need increasingly important reasons why. And then that's where we're getting into like secret twin shit from like a soap opera. Right. Or people back from the dead. And he had a amnesia and like all those sort of. I thought cliche... you dr- I thought you drowned in the Titanic. <laughs> right. Like those that's, cre- <laughs> a, that's down to Nabby. Yeah. Okay. Uh, well, that's pure soap. I mean, that yeah. is, that I don't even think was in question, at least to me, when that started. But I think, you know, it's like, well, try writing an episode of this every day for 45 years and you tell me how many people come back from the dead. You know, like, like I think you have to sort of be like, OK, well, if we're going to raise stakes and make things feel like they're still significant, it's hard to, I think, shows that we, we watch now. We still feel like, oh, really, like, this is well-worn territory or man, I don't know how many more times it can go back to this well. And the truth is, the, the deeper you have to dig that well to get more stuff out of, the more extreme those circumstances are going to become. Because otherwise, the choice is just to repeat stuff. And, and many shows do both. It's all bones. It, it, your your uh, your your point your point about the fluidity of these definitions is a really good one, Margaret. And it does become difficult to definitively say what category something falls into because they increasingly TV shows and, and a lot of movies blur the line between those two. And and there are oftentimes I think of things that are thought of in a much more quote unquote respectable way where if you actually just look at what happens. It seems to fit the definition of a soap opera. You know, what is the story of an elderly patriarch who is going to give away his kingdom and somewhat arbitrarily in his Alzheimer's haze decides that it's going to be up to his uh, three daughters to prove which of them is the most deserving? That's, you know, that's Shakespeare, but it also would be a perfect plot for, you know, some premium cable show that we would give Emmys to. (laughs) Sorry, boss. 
Yeah. <laughs> we exactly. gave you half a Golden Globe once. Uh, <laughs> boss. Oh, my God. I haven't thought of Boss in a while. <laughs> yeah. Neither is anyone else. Uh, <laughs> boom. This is my Boss material. <laughs> Apply it to your sunburns because it is topical. Uh, <laughs> just getting Boss on the air so long ago. But that's like still one of my favorite opening credit sequences. That's a really terrific title sequence. I think also it's helpful to remember that like the line between opera and drama is permeable. Ooh, yeah. Um, not just soap opera. And so when we think about the kinds of stories that really, I don't know, take us away and, and you watch something and you are not just intrigued by it, but you're no longer just experiencing the reality of it. There's like a transformation occurring or you're somewhere else. Uh, and I think that often happens through music. That's why we have, you know, liturgical music is significant in a variety of faiths and stuff, right? We There are moments of such extreme over-emotion and and scenarios that, that defy our understanding of ordinary life that, that transport us through their their extreme storytelling. And I think opera is, you know, the gold standard for that in, in contemporary Western art culture. You know, there's a reason that that, that became a, a format and there's a reason that it, it continues to be a format. And, and those ideas and those sort of experiences that we can't get through ordinary life, you know, sometimes we turn to art and entertainment and culture to see ourselves reflected and to see our experiences validated. Sometimes we turn to it to like take a break and and to stop experiencing and reflecting on what we have in front of us. And sometimes we want a new perspective and, and a way to be removed from the ordinary drudgery and to see our experiences recast in this grandiose and, and superb light and in a way that is fantastical and you still feel connected to. And that's what opera does. And that's sometimes what soap opera does. And and people who put that down can fuck off. <laughs> like, <Boom. laughs> like if somebody told you your favorite show, they're like, oh, what a soap opera. Like I would encourage you to get new friends. That's not a like... That's like the idea that that's like a derogatory thing, as Matt has already explained, is gendered. And, and I guess at this point in our very long conversation about the merits of soap opera, I hope you also think unwarranted as a uh, pejorative. I think hopefully this discussion will make people rethink it because I, I understand the reasons why people would would have that view of soap operas, because what we've grown up with is you know, this kind of idea of soap operas as less than. But yeah, I mean, we'd love to hear your thoughts on soap operas. So please email us at tvquestions at vulture.com. And we also wanted to note that we're going to be talking about Sesame Street next week, which is moving to HBO. And we'd love to hear your memories of watching Sesame Street because we're going to be... We are going to be revisiting them, hopefully. Yeah, I think uh, for a lot of people around our age, there's so many, there's like the combination of this is the song I still remember or this is the one my parents still sometimes sing when we're all, right? That like mm-hmm. there's sort of the experience of having watched it, which you may or may not remember, but then it kind of becomes like ingrained in your understanding of self and like the way, there's just like little pockets of your life that still have Sesame Street in them. And so if you have either a favorite character or moment or segment or something that you feel like, you know, maybe other 35-year-olds don't always think about Sesame Street when they're doing this, but I do. We would love to hear those. So you can email us, tvquestions at vulture.com, or leave us a voicemail at 646-504-7673. Or alternately, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, I won't do the flute solo. <laughs> Save it for next week. Yeah. <laughs> That's it for this week's Vulture TV podcast. 
The Vulture TV podcast is produced by Sam Dingman and Sarah Abdurrahman. Thanks also to Laura Mayer and Andy Bowers. The Vulture TV podcast is part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at iTunes.com slash Panoply. If you like the show, tell your friends and subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. I'm Gazella Mommy, and you can find me on Twitter at Gazellephant. I'm Margaret Lyons, and you can find me on Twitter at Marge in Charge. I'm Matt Zoller-Seitz. You can find me on Twitter at Matt Zoller-Seitz. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.